Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. What feels like the slowest week in a long time in college football. You, do you have anything, Bruce, to, to get us started here to, um, to, to, to energize the college football conversation? I do, Stu. I know that the Super Bowl has just ended, um, but we got the FCS season, the spring season, about to kick off this weekend, and I, for one, am very excited. Uh, There's a good story in there. McNeese State in Louisiana has probably endured more hardships than maybe any other program, you know, even in light of the pandemic, because on top of the pandemic... They endured two natural disasters. Uh, Hurricane Laura really devastated Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh, I talked to Frank Wilson, who's the head coach there. A lot of SEC fans probably remember him. He was a LSU assistant as well as at Ole Miss um, and Southern Miss and was then the UTSA head coach. And he pointed out it's been 445 days since that program last played a game. And what was pretty uh, you know, adding into the destruction and being relocated and and not having a place. They basically were staying in hotels till very recently. Um, they had 21 players leave the program because, as he put it, he said, you know, we had to basically re-recruit guys, you know, in the program because I'd only been there a couple of months and then the pandemic hit, so they didn't really know us. So, as he put it, um, we lost our best defensive player to Texas. That's Dorian Dunn. They lost the best defensive lineman to Syracuse, another player to Hawaii, another good player to Tulane, and it's been a scramble. Um, one other interesting note, the quarterback of the team is the son of Ed Ogeron, uh, Cody Ogeron, who started uh, in 2019. So they play Tarleton State. It'll be on the road in Texas Saturday afternoon. I'm very excited to watch. So that is basically the week zero of this spring FCS season, because that's the only game this week. It, everybody comes back next week. And for FCS fans or people who want to get into this who've never watched FCS before, we will be doing a pretty extensive series on The Athletic next week, uh, getting you primed for the season. Unfortunately, I was very disappointed to see that almost none of these games are on actual TV. They're all on ESPN+. Plus. Um, there was an announcement the other day that that um, Jackson State, uh, Deion Sanders, that, that at least one, if not more, of their games might get picked up by ESPNU. But um, the the notion back in the fall that like, oh, this is they're going to get their moment in the sun and they'll be the only one on on TV um, is not really how it's playing out yet. But we'll see. I'm very curious to see. Uh, well, I'm curious to see if there's a lot of interest in it that they wouldn't normally get in the fall because they're the only ones playing like North Dakota state is usually overshadowed by Alabama and Ohio state and everybody else. But, um, just, you know, there was a time last summer during all the uncertainty that we thought, uh, at least two conferences, the big 10 and Pac 12 were going to have to play in the spring. So let's, let's see how this little experiment works with them playing a fairly short season, uh, in the next couple months and then coming back and playing a regular season in the fall. It definitely, I mean, I think summing up how kind of the weirdness of it is that remember North Dakota state played a game in the fall 
when Trey Lance was still the quarterback, and now they're starting their actual season, and Trey Lance is about to get drafted. So, um, and those unusual... ro- and those rosters that that is a obviously North Dakota State is a a great program, but those rosters were gutted, especially in the Missouri Valley, which has so, has produced so many players. And I talked to an assistant coach in that league. Uh, a couple of weeks back just about like you know, you know how this ramp up is going because it was one of those things when people were talking about it it got some attention but then as it's kind of you know gone into it I think people either got wrapped up in certainly in the end of the NFL season and and the and recruiting and whatever else and again most of the best players in that league ended up getting poached somewhere or another um you know, going on to FBS programs. And so they really, really got, I don't want to say depleted, but, um, you know, you look at South Dakota State. We did their game a couple of years ago where they almost beat Minnesota in the opener. Kay Johnson, their best player, he was at the Senior Bowl. You know, he didn't play this past year. It's not just Trey Lance. North Dakota State lost their best offensive lineman who was also in the Senior Bowl. Uh, their running back transferred, I think, to Western Kentucky. Illinois State's best defensive lineman went to Charlotte. Youngst- Youngstown's best defensive end went to Virginia Tech. Northern Iowa had two big-time players uh, in the Senior Bowl as well. And so I think Pierre Strong, the running back at South Dakota State, is really one of the few kind of uh, more high-profile FCS players who, who stayed in there and is, is going to be playing right now. So... One other bit of news we wanted to touch on that is um, kind of came out of nowhere. The Jacksonville Jaguars announced their new coaching staff on Thursday morning, and it was just on a series of tweets. And dropped in there was uh, a name college football fans might remember from some events last summer, Chris Doyle. Iowa's strength coach under Kirk Ferentz for two decades until this past summer when a whole bunch of former players came out and uh, accused him of racist statements and uh, mistreatment of players. It wasn't one player or two players. I mean, it was many. And uh, yeah, Urban Meyer just kind of slipped that in there this morning. That's his new head of, of his new head strength coach. Well, it's actually, technically it is his director of sports performance. Right. Uh, I wanted to get into this a little bit and into, into more detail because as... Um, you know, as the news got out this morning, as they released it, and I was about to just tweet out Urban Meyer's hired, and I just put former, and I was like, was he, you know, in my head, I was like, he was the he was fired. But then I was like, no, no, technically he wasn't fired. I know he got a a, a pretty big settlement from, uh, from Iowa. And so I talked to our Iowa beat writer, Scott Docterman, who's as much of an authority on that as everything. And I'm going to actually read, Scott, if you are just seeing the, seeing this now um scott and andy staples have a story that went up as we're taping and so this is doctorman iowa reached a 1.1 million dollar separation agreement with doyle on june 15th 10 days after dozens of allegations surfaced over the longtime strength coach's role in fostering a bullying culture and overall racial insensitivity those facts were verified in a summer-long investigation by an outside legal firm uh, what is also indisputable, Scott continues to write, is Doyle's prowess at building football players. He was college football's highest paid.
paid strength coach for a reason. Several NFL players returned to Iowa City after each season to train with him, and he has had several staunch defenders. Um, and as Scott puts it, as Doyle's re- recognized his past behavior was unacceptable, question, the Jaguars are betting that he has. Um, yeah, this is this is definitely a controversial or at least polarizing hire uh, for Urban Meyer as he goes into the NFL. It would have been, it would have raised eyebrows if any NFL team named him to that that um, higher role. Uh, but of course, if it's Urban Meyer, I mean, there was, you know, they had a press conference. He said they, that he fully vetted the hire. And of course, <laughs> you're going to take that with a grain of salt when we talk, we're talking about Urban and betting hires. Um, I don't think he gets the benefit of the doubt at this point after the Zach Smith situation. At the end of the day, like, we can tweet about it, comment about it. It's not our opinion that matters. How how will uh, black players in the Jacksonville Jaguars, these are pro athletes, not college athletes who are afraid to, you know, I mean, we heard over and over these players didn't feel like they could speak up when they were at Iowa because, you know, a college athlete is fairly powerless in the grand scheme of things. But an NFL player who's paid millions of dollars and has a platform is not going to feel shy about speaking up um, if something happens. So, yeah, it's it's frustrating because it just feels like time and again you see somebody fired for um, you know, very troubling allegations, and then they just they find the new land. If they're if they're respected by the coaches, they find another landing spot immediately. Meanwhile. Yet again, the story of the coaching carousel in both college and NFL this year is that black coaches can't get head coaching jobs. Eric Bieniemy, being uh, the Chiefs OC, being the most prominent example, but he's not alone. So, um, very frustrating. Uh, I'm not saying that Chris Doyle should never work in football again. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but that's a pretty cushy job he just landed. Well, it's definitely a it's definitely a big job he got, and it is it's going to be interesting to see again if what will be the reaction from the players that he works with, and you know we'll see because I mean again now you're dealing with grown men, it's going to be a different dynamic, but um, you know again that's that's uh, it was definitely a for for people who follow college football it was a a kind of you did a double take when you saw that name attached especially like you said to urban meyer the two urban meyer part is the is the key component there because i don't again i don't think so, uh, you know name another random nfl coach if matt hired. rule had hired him does this get anywhere near the attention you think i think people would be really surprised if matt rule hired him uh but i don't know that it would be the instant headline that it is when it's urban meyer and and that's due to his track record, right? I mean, not just that he's a big name and and obviously there's been a lot of, like he, he was going to get a lot of attention this year going from from you know national championship coach to, to NFL for the first time, but because of what happened with Zach Smith. All right. Let's, uh, do you want to go to the mailbag, Stu? Yeah. I put out a call for questions on Twitter and we got great responses. And as always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. What do you say we start with Parrish in Sharpsburg, Georgia? Bruce and Stu and JT Daniels, four games, albeit with three of the four against lower-level SEC teams, Georgia averaged 7.5 yards per play, which would have been good enough 
for a top five finish in that metric over the entire season. Do you think those four games will prove persistent? <laughs> Prescient? <laughs> Prescient still? I don't like that word. Or will we look back on them as fool's gold? Uh, that is a good question. Um, JT Daniels performed better than the buzz was about him going into the season around Georgia. So, you know, look, I think some of this also could be you had, they had to rebuild an offensive line. They didn't have much back of guys who played on offense and a new offensive coordinator. So maybe it also took the, you know, the parts around him some time to gel, I think. Um, I don't want to go all the way in on this, on, on this and this offense. Um, Todd Munkin came in with a, you know, a really strong reputation. And I think it took them some time to, to, uh, kind of get rolling. Um, you know, I think sometimes people look at JT Daniels and they see, well, he was a five-star recruit coming out of a quarterback factory at modern day. So I, I think, and he had some good moments and as a true freshman at USC. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I think he's a good quarterback. I don't anticipate people talking about him where he's going to be a All-American or that he is going to be a, you know, a, a um, you know, first-round pick kind of guy. I, I mean, they have really good receivers now because now those, you know, George Pickens is no longer... You know, he was a second-year player last year. Now he's got more time. They have they have some good young receivers who who got settled in last year, and so I think they'll they'll take us they'll continue to take a step forward. But I do not think we're going to see the LSU offense like of 2019 or or the Alabama offense of 2020. I think there's a feeling with Georgia at this point and Kirby Smart that I'll believe it when I see it. But at the end of the day. They did play a lot better on offense once he took over as the quarterback, and they're bringing back everybody next year um, that was part of that surge late in the season, not just JT Daniels, but Zamir White and James Cook and Kenny Milton, the running backs. And uh, Darnell Washington was really impressive as a freshman tight end. Uh, you mentioned Pickens, Jermaine Burton, Kyrus Jackson. And then, you know, last year they had a lot of turnover on offensive line. Um, they'll be more experienced up there. So, there's no reason why it shouldn't be a very I have a offense. good question for you, Stu, then. A follow-up of what Parrish said. Yes. Um, Kyle Trask, gone to the NFL. Mac Jones, gone to the NFL. Kellen Mond, gone to the NFL. Uh, if you look at it right now, if you are making, you have to fill out a preseason All-SEC team, is JT Daniels your preseason All-SEC quarterback? Ooh, good question. Um I don't think so because solely because of the guy coming back at Ole Miss. Like, who are you? Who are you choosing between those two? Um, I think the Ole Miss offense. And I look, he's lost the best receiver. I was going to say the best receiver in the conference. I can't do that to Alabama, but one of the best receivers in the country. Um, and they lost some good players around there. I don't know. I mean, that's a tough one. I. I mean, Missouri has a good young quarterback. Obviously, you know, Lane has a really good young quarterback or, you know, I guess he's a soft, going to be a junior now or a sophomore. I don't even know what we're calling guys who are super sophomores. But whew, 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I I suspect JT Daniels will get a lot of votes for for because of the talent around him of being preseason All SEC quarterback. I'm going to go off the board, and I will say the best quarterback in the conference will be Bryce Young. I don't think that's a very controversial opinion. No, it's uh, cheating. It's yeah. Cheating. I mean, but I don't think they can name him. You know, come SEC media days, I don't think he'll be named the preseason guy because he hasn't played. But I don't think it makes me surprised if he, if if uh, under new OC Bill O'Brien, if by the end of the year he is that guy. All right, next question from Chris: The Sark hire at Texas was interesting in that the firing and hiring announcement happened practically simultaneously. Is there a reason why this is not more common among coaching searches in college football? Seems like a good way to avoid the chaos and uncertainty that accompanies a coaching search like Auburn and Tennessee's this year. Yeah, this was a unique situation, Stu, as you and I have talked about offline quite a bit. Uh, Christel Conti and the power brokers of Texas had really made up their minds that that uh, Tom Herman, they just didn't think was going to get the job done. And, you know, initially it was... Urban Meyer was the target. Then when he wasn't interested, then it was like, okay, what are we going to do? Um, I really think from the point they got to or right before signing, they, when they put out that statement, it was like, who can we get? And then it became an issue of being very discreet or stealthy behind the scenes of vetting Steve Sarkeesian, who obviously, you know, as we talked about even with him on the podcast, he has some issues that I think made some ADs have to, you know, dig a little deeper because of the way things uh, ended for him at USC. So I think going through that process, credit to Texas that they were able to do it um, very discreetly. I, I mean, that firing happened on a Saturday morning. Now, I, you know, I think Chip, ba- Chip Brown, who our friend who covers Texas, I believe he was the first one to really say they're targeting everything. Sark is expected to be the guy. And so I don't know what the lag time, how much that was bubbling behind the scenes. Um, you know, I, I don't think it was a shock for a lot of people that they were going to rip off the Band-Aid. It was a question of, but they were going to line up Sark. It almost never happens where a search process can be that that uh, stealthy. It just doesn't happen, especially at a big program like Texas. Um, these things kind of... They leak out. They get they get messy, and um, it's just it's a unique situation. I can't think of many others that happen where they happen like that as fast. Where um, now I think what added to the speed of this happening was that Sark ha- had a national title game to to prepare for, and so from the Alabama slash Sark side, they wanted that thing wrapped up and put out there as soon as possible because then it could have whatever it is a 24 36 hour news cycle to digest it and then they move on and then it kind of you know he can get back to Alabama business usually there isn't that thing looming behind it to kind of expedite it right and the one thing that I I do think like kind of muddled it a little bit just as somebody who was trying to confirm it was there was a part of it somewhere in the process on Saturday where David Pollack, who works for ESPN, I think had had put out on Twitter, I caution to use the word reported, but put out on Twitter that Sark was turning it down. And I think 
that was like a little bit of a curveball because a lot of people, myself included, who were reporting on it, that was not what we were hearing. And so, you know, it made it not quite as seamless, I guess, but for the most part, um, it was a it was a very unique situation that it was as seamless as, as it could be because it usually just gets out other ways. And like you said, I mean, preparing this happened the day after the semifinals. So clearly those conversations would have had to have started taking place while he was preparing for the semifinal game for it to get wrapped up that quickly. So um, it is... And also, in, in, in this, which is one other thing on that, Stu, like, it's not a secret. Chris Del Conte, the AD of Texas, is good friends with Greg Byrne, the AD at Alabama. So I think he probably has pretty good, you know, insight into the one of the people he was going to be looking at. Well, now that just I hadn't really thought about all this since it happened, but but now thinking back on it and talking, listening to you talk it through, it is actually pretty amazing that it didn't leak out before the day after the game, given high profile program, high profile coach involved um i don't know whether to credit crystal conti or be like man that was stealth and cold <laughs> the way he did that behind herman's back but long story short i to answer chris's question you don't think that's going to become commonplace i do not i do not think it will okay uh, next question. This one is for you, Stu, from Ian McFarland from La Cañada, California. Fellas, hope you're both well. Thank you, Ian. We hope you are too. Every article, ranking, and podcast I hear keep saying that Oregon and USC are the only hopes for the Pac-12 in 2021. But what about my beloved Huskies? A reminder that they won the division in the joke of a 2021 season while Oregon went 4-3. and three. Oregon's young talent is unquestioned. But UW is 15th in Bill Connolly's returning production, and that's 7th on offense and 11th in SP+. But you'd think that they are headed for 5-7 and seven with the lack of coverage they receive. What gives? Is their boring style not interesting enough to cover? I'd like to, uh, first of all, note that in my early top 25, I have Oregon higher than Washington, but I do not. But I have Washington 18th and I have USC unranked but also just like I'd like to know what where are where are all these articles and rankings and podcasts where they're debating the 2021 Pac-12 already um I think that you know it's tough it's going to be very tough to forecast the Pac-12 because we saw so little of these teams Washington finished three and one I mean they look good uh you know in in some of those games but it was four games I do think that they should be really good on defense. I mean, you wrote a, a big story about ZTF. I, I was blown away by him. Um, Savelle Smalls was a big-time recruit and will probably play a lot uh, going into his... How are we doing this? Are we going to call them sophomores or, or, or are we freezing them in time? There's, there's a bit of a debate among college football media right now how to handle the free year of eligibility. Yeah, one of the coaches I know referred to referred to seniors as super seniors i have um, heard that one yeah and i don't know if that just carries over to everything like i don't know i don't know i mean it's um it's you get enough people riled up when they use the term true freshman now all of a sudden <laughs> what is it what is adding to the mix well you've got theoretically next year you could have true freshmen who are coming into college Freshmen who were true freshmen will still be freshmen, and then actual red. I don't know. I think we should just move them up. Like 
you do need that term super senior, I guess, for the guys who should have normally had their be done with their eligibility. But for the classes behind that, I say we move them up to the next year. And then, you know, four or five years from now, they're going to still use that year of eligibility. Well, then they'll be super seniors, right? Yeah. So let me let me pinpoint you a little bit back on Washington. Yeah. Because Ian wanted to know, and I wonder if this factors into it. Um, Jimmy Lake has a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, uh, coaches, new coaches kind of get um, graded or pegged on how their coordinator hires shape up. So his first coordinator hire, um, John Donovan, who had been at Penn State, and I don't think Penn State fans were raving about him. Um, and then this, then Pete Kwiatkowski, who was a really good defense coordinator, he left to go to Texas. And uh, Jimmy Lake ended up promoting from within in Bob Gregory. So is that something that gives you a little pause and looking and saying, okay, I don't foresee Washington becoming a top five caliber team in the next year or two? I mean, is it because you mentioned they definitely have potential star power in the in the pass rush side with those guys. Jimmy Lake has been terrific in developing defensive backs. I don't feel like defensively is the thing that's going to be troubling. I think it's the offensive issue, which has been that way before. You know, it's been that way for a little while. I mean, I think there was moments where people felt like the offense with Jake Browning, even though he'd been there a long time, kind of leveled off. And it after he left uh, and Jacob Eason ended up with the job, it wasn't like it got better. So where is your, where's the, Where's your pulse on where you feel like the Washington program is? Because we get a lot of Oregon has been really strong recruiting and they create a lot of buzz with that. I think you and I are agreement. We both like the two hires that uh, Mario Cristobal has made recently in the offensive coordinator spot and defensive coordinator spot. Um, but where are we on? Where do you where are you with the Huskies? Yeah, that's a good question because when they went to the playoff, and that was now a long time ago, but when they went to the playoff under Chris Peterson um, in Oregon, I think that same year was that was their four and eight debacle. Um, there was this sense that like, oh, Washington is passing Oregon as a program and taking back the Pacific Northwest, and that that didn't last very long. Um, that being said, Oregon had a great season two years ago, won the Pac-12, went to the Rose Bowl, but. You know, they were, as he said, they were four and three last year. You know, I think the buzz around Oregon is much more so, obviously, than it is for Washington because of recruiting. We, we haven't seen a Pac 12 team not named USC, you know, if they get in the 247 rankings being up there number five, number six in the country. I mean, that's remarkable. And it makes you feel like, okay, Oregon's putting together like a program that can compete with the best in the country. Washington is still doing more of the more, more sliding under the radar in the recruiting landscape, but, um, I think, I think they have something to prove, you know, I think I was frankly giving them a little bit, a lot of benefit of the doubt in putting them number 18 in the country. So you're rethinking it. I wouldn't say I'm rethinking it. I would say that I would, I I would guess, I guess what I'm saying is I to you know, I'm sorry, Ian, that you're feeling you're like your team is so disrespected, but I'm, I think they're gonna have to do a little bit more to earn that respect on you. Yeah, I mean, it, it was not. Yeah, I would agree with what you said. I, I want to see the offense come to life. And right now I haven't, you know, we need to see that. I mean, it's look, the 2020 season was so truncated, and especially from the Pac-12 
way it unfolded, I think that adds to it. Um, you know, I still think Jimmy Lake was a, was a good hire to elevate from there. And, you know, this is the offense that he believes in. And, you know, we'll see how, it, you know, one year is not fair to judge it. So, I don't know. I'm not one, like, I, I guess uh, where Ian put it, I mean, I'm one where I think Oregon to me is a, is a legit top 15 team, I think. Um, based on how they recruited and, and how they, I think they've set up. Um, I think USC is a little below that, but I think USC is a top 25 team. And then all of a sudden it's a little bit, little bit um, shaky or a lot shaky. To say the least, but like I mentioned in the last podcast and like Ian brought up, they are dominating Bill Connolly's returning production rankings. So always a good sign for the conference. Nathan in Boulder, Colorado. Bruce and Stu, I have a lighter, less depressing question for you. Have we been getting a lot of depressing questions? I haven't noticed. Um, (laughs) Several people have excelled at video game racing and turned that talent into being a real racing driver. Do you think that someone could excel at a football simulation game, maybe like the pending EA Sports game, and turn that into a successful football coaching career? I think someone in the top 1% of players might understand the real game well enough to be an analyst or even an assistant coach at a smaller school? That is a really interesting question. Um, I think he's onto something because we have heard of players who have felt like they were that, that playing that game helped them learn offenses. I mean, I'll, I personally remember playing that game way back when and feeling like I learned a lot about schemes and playbooks from from playing that game and that game's a lot more advanced now or probably will be a lot more advanced now than it was then um you know uh brennan marion who is the receivers coach at hawaii now and he was an offense coordinator in fcs and i remember talking to him where a couple of plays that that he had kind of come up with ended up in uh in the video game hmm. and I think there are, I feel like it's hard to find somebody that would be a grassroots, this was their background and they came up from it because just a lot of coaching also ends up being, you know, it's, it's players, not plays. It's how you relate to players. It's, it's how these parts fit together. Um, but I would never say never. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Honestly, I would, I would love to get the perspective on there's enough young coaches in football who I think grew up with the game as well, but also, um, you know, understand how the parts work, meaning like it's more than just, Hey, this is a cool play. And this is, you know, I see this cause it's, it's, it's very interesting. Even as young as like my six year old son who plays Madden, um, and is obsessed with football. Like he, he draws up plays you know, things that, you know, now he drew up a play that was very similar, you know, from like a, from like four wide offense that was basically a wheel route um, and not knowing it was a wheel route, but there are, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in this, in this subject. I don't know the answer to it. I think if you would talk to football coaches who are much older, I think they would, they would probably be dismissive of it. Um, You know, I, I mean, one of the things that I've heard from, and this isn't quite the same thing, but it's it's a maybe it's in the spirit of it. Is um, a coach I know at, at 
pointed out, he was like, well, this this person who was a really good player thinks that they could just jump in and, and be like a head coach. And this is not related to Deion Sanders, by the way, but just thinks that they could come in and coach or be or run a position room in, at a high level college. And this coach was like, maybe as like a maybe they could help as an analyst or maybe they could help as a but they this person felt like there's too much stuff that goes in to being a college coach on the field at that point that would be a learn on the fly situation that would you'd have to start out something differently now this is obviously not what nathan is asking about but i think that's kind of the a little bit of the attitude that that i think you're you'd probably be walking in on okay um we have to okay so i think the listeners deserve to hear more about your football savant son you just kind of lost past that did you say ben your six-year-old like accidentally not accident like just on his own designed a wheel route yeah so this was a play that this happened you know it's funny is like our, our our daughter who's his twin she is into princesses and more artistic. He is drawing up, you know, he'll draw up the field, he does his X and O's, and he designed a play for one of his favorite quarterbacks and basically talked about, okay, this is what this receiver does. He has the blocking scheme, and then the the back comes out of the backfield. Now, the wheel route is basically, it's. I mean, I, I showed it to Andy because there's a video of it, and... It's essentially a wheel route. Um, he doesn't know what's called. <laughs> but the wheel he route. knew the blocking schemes. Well, he knew what he wanted to do to to basically occupy the defense and how to basically sneak the running back behind, you know, get him behind the defense, and what the what the route combinations of the re- the other re- the four receivers were going to be. That's it amazing. Was, it was uh, it was something. So it's a lot different in my household where. Um, my daughter, who turns five this weekend, is all into pop stars and singing and dancing. And proud accomplishment for me is that I've now got her also listening to Weezer, and she's now singing along to the Blue Album. So, wheel routes for you, Weezer for me. You never got me into any of that. Um, yeah, and one thing <laughs> that has been especially good about the loving sports is it has definitely helped his math skills. Um, in terms of adding, you know, it's like initially started out as well. That's three touchdowns. That's how I get to twenty-one, or you yeah, know, like those things. And in, but it's sixes, threes, sevens, all that stuff has helped. Um, but yeah, it's it's been you know it's been fun to just have somebody who is so interested in something I'm so interested in. You know, you know, like you know how you see these a lot of the articles and parents who are concerned about too much screen time. Mm-hmm. I'm calling BS on that um, during the, you know, this is during the pandemic. People, you know, oh, I, I've had to leave them with a tablet for so long and da, da, da. My daughter has learned so much from the learning games we put on her tablet. And also, like, at some point in the last year, she figured out how to text people. And, like, I swear, it's, you know, she's probably a more advanced reader than, than she could be for her age. Just from, like, she sends a text to her grandma, her grandma writes her back, she reads the text. So, PSA for all parents out there: stop sweating the screen time. I don't know if it's if it's the screen. I mean, if it's the screen time, maybe before bed. Um, this is a discussion point in our house sometimes, where it's like, um, you know, should they be 
doing things that get them amped up at uh, you know after eight after eight fifteen. You know, if they're supposed to go to bed at eight forty five or you know supposed to be asleep by nine. I mean, that's part of it, I guess. Um, what we've done is um, no video games during the week just to try to manage it. Like we've also seen, you know, we get a little werewolf in our, in our son when it comes to some of like some of this stuff. So it's just try to manage it. However you can try to manage it. But I think one thing you said that, that I think is, is, um, is something I agree with, which was, you know, in the pandemic, you know, people are stressed. Parents are stressed. A lot of them are working from home. They're trying to juggle all sorts of stuff. You know, one thing I, I took away pretty early on is like, look, if our kids end up watching a little too much TV during this, you know, okay, we'll, we'll manage, you know, I mean, you just do the best you can because, you know, people got to work, they got to do, you know, they got to do whatever they can and not to, not to, you know, drudge into the, you know, I think, unfortunately, this comes out of Nathan saying, I have a lighter, less depressing question for you <laughs> talking about the pandemic. I apologize, Nathan, I didn't mean to go there. Um, that's what you get when you use the word screen time, Stu. It takes it into a different place. Well, yeah, I, didn't, I guess like you guys, it's it's a very relevant topic for all parents, but apparently you've been debating it as well. Um, yeah, to be clear, I think there's lots of different kinds of screen time, and I'm not talking about like letting your kid play Call of Duty all day. Um, but but anyway, I should probably I should probably uh, very clunkily bring this back to football um, from Darren. In Shreveport, Louisiana. Hey, Stu and Bruce, I love the pod and everything the athletic has brought to sports. Thank you, Darren. Um, as an LSU fan, obviously it stings seeing Eric Gilbert transfer from LSU to a rival in Florida. With all the talk happening of the NCAA's upcoming vote on immediate eligibility for one time transfers, could you see a conference not allowing players to be immediately eligible if they transfer within the conference? Tampering must be something that college football coaches are concerned about, especially within conferences. Could the SEC require a player? To receive a waiver of the from the conference office for immediate eligibility, I could see a conference putting pushing back on that. I don't know to what degree they would push back on it, um, but for the reasons. And by the way, thank you, Darren, for for that. Um, the kind words about the athletic and our. Uh, I, I I could see a conference pushing back on that just because of the reasons he said. I think one of the things that people are leery of is tampering and third party and different things like that it doesn't mean that you can't have tampering in things that don't go on in 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 between the conference but um i don't know i think that's something that i feel like and it's not just the sec i feel like some conference leaders are uncomfortable with i could see them fight you know being resistant i don't know that you could go through with that because uh you know, it could, could be a recruiting disadvantage if you're saying, like, if you come to this conference, you're not going to have the same flexibility that players in other conferences do. Um, now, the SEC did, there is a precedent for this recently, which is when the grad transfer became a thing. Uh, the SEC, and I believe only the SEC among major conferences, had a rule that you couldn't take a grad transfer that only had one year of eligibility left. Um, you had to, and, and there were a lot of, situations recently where there was appeals and, and fighting for and I think it eventually either got eventually repealed or basically like Greg Sankey was giving exceptions to it. I'm sorry I don't know the exact details on that. But yeah, there was a situation where a conference had a stricter rule than was than could be permitted by the NCA. All right, Bruce, let's wrap up with a really fun one from our Robert R in Oklahoma City. 
I heard a rumor you guys want questions. I have a question. We did want questions. Thank you, Robert. Yes, the SEC won another football championship, but what conference rules acting? Tom Brady will never help the Big Ten here. Peyton Manning's quite a boost for the SEC. Burt Reynolds, Chris Paul, and The Rock for the ACC, while Baker Mayfield, good. Brian Bosworth, good. Blake Griffin, good. And Patrick Mahomes, so-so. I guess he's referring to the State Farm commercials. He's not impressed with Patrick Mahomes. Are making a decent case for a rising Big 12 in the conference acting championships. What say you all? So I assume they have to have played for these programs. I believe so. Otherwise, the Big Ten would win just from Northwestern's acting lineage. (sighs) I walked into that stupidity on my own, (laughs) didn't I? Uh, So we're not going to count SID assistance, so we can't count Will Ferrell for USC then, right? You know, that's a tough one. I guess not, no. But I think, I think what he's overlooking here is that the two L.A. schools, oh, yeah. just by being in L.A., are going to give the Pac-12 quite a boost here. Yes. Um, first of all, John Wayne, who is obviously a legendary actor, played football for USC. That's a big one for them. Mark Harmon was a really good quarterback for UCLA. That would be a pretty big one for them. I mean, just in terms of what they did, what they, uh, what they have accomplished in that field because I, I feel like what Robert is is including are athletes who've transitioned over more than anything yeah than, I mean it doesn't actors. I mean he's counting Burt Reynolds so yeah sure. no, that's true it seems to be a mix of actual actors and commercial guys who've been good in commercials which by the way score another one for the Pac-12 Aaron Rodgers is, is really good in those State Farm commercials yeah I feel like you know this is the kind of thing where there's a probably a ton of people that we would be overlooking um in this by the way um my alma mater though since you since you pulled it out and went with northwestern my alma mater actually is pretty strong on this front you know why not just the rock who's like the hottest name in in pop culture really but also you know who else went to miami yeah i can't yeah he didn't play football there that's the problem sylvester stallone Oh, I did. Somehow I didn't know that. Um, Yeah, I I think it would take forever if we started looking up where every actor went to school. But in terms of athletes, I got another one in the Pac-12's favor, Joel McHale. Washington. Yeah, Washington. Washington player. So whatever he was. I mean, I'm sure the people listening right now are going to email us with like, oh, you forgot about this guy. You forgot about this guy. But I have a feeling the Pac-12 would end up winning that. Yeah, and I think a lot of times, I mean, look, <laughs> cringe as I bring this up now, but um, who was the old running back who was in the Naked Gun movies? Didn't he play at USA? Oh, jeez. Yeah, yes. I mean, but ugh, do we have to count him? Um, no, I, we don't have to do anything on that. But I, I mean, there was a lot of people who I feel like have come through USC who um, who ended up having pretty successful moving careers like Matt Willig is a name. I don't know if you remember. Um, he was like a six, eight lineman who ended up uh, as kind of, he was a villain in a lot of movies just cause he was like a huge dude. If you Google him, you're like, Oh, I remember him in what was the movie where um, this is so, this is so typical of me where I'm going to go. What was the movie where it's the SNL guy who I always feel like dates way above what I think he should be able to get. Um, it's not fair. I knew exactly who you're talking about. Jason Sudeikis, Jason Sudeikis. And they end up in Mexico. And, Oh, um, 
we're, we're the Millers. Yeah. So uh, Matt Willig, I think, is the is the killer who's trying to get him. Um, is one of them. So. Wow. I, I actually saw that movie again recently and, and could not have told you that was the name of that guy. Yeah. The reason why I know is just because one day he came out to USC practice. They were honoring, I think the team he was on was maybe the, I don't know what it was, maybe the 1998 team or so. And he played in the NFL for, I don't know, a few, you know, five, seven years or so. And I was like, who is that guy? Because like, he's every bit of like six, seven, 300 pounds and in really good shape. And then somebody said, no, he's in like a ton of movies and ton of TV shows. So, um, yes, we are the Millers. He was, his role was, quote, one eye. Well, if nothing else, I think what Robert was looking for here is he, as you, he's in Oklahoma City and he mentioned three um, Sooners. Who, so let's at least give a little validation here that they do seem to, for whatever reason, produce uh, guys who are good in commercials. Yeah, I think I, you know, my our buddy Dan Wykey, who covers the NBA for the LA Times, is friendly with Blake Griffin from when Blake Griffin was um, was with the Clippers, and he said he's really funny and really cared about, uh, you know, that side of his his career a little bit. So, and I think and Baker, the Baker Mayfield yeah. at home commercials. At first, I didn't think much of them, but like they keep making them, and they're actually pretty funny. Yeah, I think Baker. You know, I. I found this from covering him and doing some tv pieces he could laugh at himself he he has a good sense of humor and it's not surprising that he is you know that's kind of shined through in his in his commercials good set of questions everybody these actually came in on very short notice when i sent a reminder out on twitter so i'm going to send a reminder now that you can send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com we'll see you next time (laughs) 